Hello, and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies, and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Jeremy Shapiro. I'm the research director at ECFR, and this week we're talking about what European citizens think about the Russia-Ukraine crisis. ECFR commissioned a flash poll last month covering Finland, France, Germany, Italy, Poland, Romania, and Sweden, countries that together account for about two-thirds of the EU's population, uh, to see what they thought about this crisis. We've heard a lot in recent weeks about how about a Europe that's divided, weak, and absent on Ukraine. I may have written a couple of things on that myself. Uh, But a new ECFR report based on the data argues that there is a surprising consensus, at least among the populations, about this crisis. So I'm very happy to welcome the authors of uh, this report. Uh, first, Mark Leonard, who is uh, the director of ECFR and actually the host of this podcast, but uh, he thought it would be unwise to interview himself. So uh, I'm doing it. Uh, and we were going to have uh, Ivan Krastev, who is the chair of the Center of Liberal Strategies in Sofia and a permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna, but he's had a family emergency and had to bow out. Um, so it's just me and Mark, but we'll, we will endeavor to persevere. Um, so uh, I think that the, the, the first thing to do, Mark, is to tell us what you found uh, from the poll and what your paper tells us about the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Thanks, Jeremy. It's great to be on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it's good that you knew somebody that could get you on. <laughs> um, so... It's really interesting poll because I think it shows that Europe has come quite a long way over the last decade um, when it comes both to thinking about security, but also particularly thinking about Ukraine. I think in 2014, when Crimea was annexed, um, many Europeans, obviously not those living in the near vicinity of Ukraine, but many in other parts of Europe thought of Ukraine as a faraway country about which they knew little. Um, with our poll, uh, shows that people are really sitting up and paying attention to the looming crisis in Ukraine and taking it very, very seriously. We sort of found a, a surprising consensus between Europeans, north, south, east and west, around four kind of central um, uh, propositions. The first is, is that war uh, is no longer unthinkable in Europe. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of People talked about how the fight against the pandemic was, was like a war. Now there's a real war stalking Europe. And most people, uh, in fact, most of the countries, all the countries apart from Finland that we polled, think that that war is now likely to happen. So war is no longer unthinkable. It seems almost inevitable in many people's minds. The polls are uh, the most kind of uh, sure that it's going to happen. 73% of polls think uh, an invasion's Likely, but the same is true of 64% in Romania, 55% in Sweden, 52% in Germany, 51% in France and Italy. And even in Finland, which is the most relaxed country, maybe because of its neutrality, um, uh, 44%, which is a small plurality, think that uh, an invasion is likely. Well, you know, you've reached a desperate state of affairs when Finland is the most relaxed place in Europe. <laughs> that is true. Um, so uh, that's, I think, quite a, quite a big shift, as I, as I said before. And then what's also very interesting is that um, 
it seems to be uh, not just uh, you know a question of people remembering the Cold War, but there seems to have been a new appraisal of Russia um, as a threat across different European countries. What was interesting is we asked people about the different dimensions of the Russian threat, and we can come to that later on. It's one of the other points, but every country, a majority of people saw Russia as a threat. And what was most interesting, actually, when it came to this question of the, the Russian invasion, is that we looked at the age breakdown in different countries. And almost everywhere, the people who thought the war would most likely were the young people, 18 to 29-year-olds, thought it was more likely than those above the age of 60. Which They watch a lot of television, I suppose. I'm not quite sure why it is, but it, yeah. it showed these are people who were born after the end of the Cold War. So it's a new Russia that they're fearing. It's Putin's Russia rather than the, the sort of ghosts of, um, of, of, of the Cold War. I mean, this is kind of a surprising result, I think. I think a lot of people will be surprised because all we talk about is sort of European division and European, uh, let's say, apathy almost toward this problem especially in the West, of course. So, I mean, are there, despite what you said, are there differences about how people see this war and, and how people see um, the Russian threat? Yeah, yeah. So there, there are lots of differences. I mean, we can look at uh, the differences in terms of what, how they see the threat. I mean, what is sort of interesting, though, is that um, people don't just see it as a threat to Ukraine. They see it as a threat to themselves. But exactly how they define that threat to themselves differs quite a lot from country to country. The one sentence summary is people are scared about the last horrible thing the Kremlin did to them. So in <laughs> Poland, people are very scared of all dimensions of the threat. Um, uh, we looked at five different dimensions of the threat that could come out of Russia's stance on, on Ukraine. Um, but the, the, the most prominent one in many people's minds was the threat of, kind of refugees and migration coming in. They're also very worried about military dimension uh, uh, um, and energy. But um, in France and in Sweden, the number one thing they were worried about was cyber warfare, which maybe um, reflects the fact that both countries had their elections um, interfered with by the, by the Russians. When it comes to Romania, um, economic uh, slowdown is, is, is quite high on the, the list of priorities. Um, and for Germany, uh, Italy and Finland, it's energy, which is uh, right at the top of their concerns. So in essence, the Russians have sort of been using a portfolio of um, techniques to cheese off um, Europe over the last 15 years or so, and now they've achieved it completely. Uh, and they have uh, everybody's annoyed at them for a variety of different reasons. Absolutely. And I think that's therefore leading to a sense that this is a problem, not just for Ukraine, but a problem for uh, every single country through those different channels. But therefore, also, I think Europeans are starting to see this as a problem for the whole European security order. And that's really the second thing which, which we found, which is very interesting, which is um, the fact that they think we should respond to it. Now, who we is... It's, uh, it's obviously covers a multitude of, of, of sins, but um, what was very striking is, is that they thought that one we should respond to it. We asked people who should respond: NATO, the European Union, someone else US, was the general answer: Germany, France, the UK, my own country. And yeah, the general answer was someone else. Um, 
but in fact, not necessarily someone else. I think it was not just us was the, is the accurate answer. So at the top of the list was NATO. If you look at the aggregate, 62% said that, that NATO should respond. Yeah, the Americans can handle this for us. I'm used to that answer. Well, that's one of the interesting things. So you have NATO at 62%, the EU at 60%. Americans are only at 54%. Then Germany at 49%, France 47 UK 44 my own country 43 That's in the aggregate. But yeah. behind those kind of overall figures, what you see is, is, is some quite big differences between different players. Um, so in Poland, actually, the very top was actually the EU. It wasn't NATO. 80% thought that the EU should respond. 79% thought NATO should respond. Um, and then in, um, in Italy and uh, uh, Sweden, Romania... Finland, France, and Germany, they all thought that NATO would be the, the, should be the top responder. Um, but what's interesting about, about th- those questions is that um, you don't have in the minds of European voters a kind of big difference between the EU and NATO, which you see in a lot of our public debates. I mean, the stereotype is that Eastern Europeans think that... Yeah, no, I guess I had that stereotype. That only the US matters, whereas actually the polls saw Europe as right at the top of the list. Can and, you account for that or do you have an explanation? Well, I think that they think this is a kind of existential threat, so we should respond. I mean, it's almost the same number of people said the So EU they probably mean both, really. I think they mean both. But, but also, I think if you look at the difference between how people think about NATO and the US, that's also interesting because um, hmm. you would have thought that NATO is code for the US. It is to me, yeah. Um, as an American. Yeah. But, um, That's what Donald Trump told me that we're the only <laughs> one who contributes to it. So I thought it must be true. But in the minds of Europeans, I think these things are different. And what we, we noted, because we asked another question, right, who do you trust to defend your interests? And actually very low levels of trust in the US to, to defend their interests. Every country trusted Germany more than the US, apart from Poland. Obviously, Poland's not high trust in, in Germans, but, but everyone else trusted Germany more than, than yeah, the US. that is historically comprehensible. So I think that that reflects the sort of sense that maybe in many people's minds that the US is just a part-time European power now, um, which is what successive US administrations have been warning us would happen. So um, that maybe that penny might be dropping in the minds of European citizens. I'm struggling with these results, not because I think that they don't make sense, doesn't make sense for European, for the European publics to think these things. Actually, what you're showing is a, is to me a fairly sort of level-headed and rational perspective from uh, your European publics, which I don't expect generally from any public. Um, but also that um, it stands to me at least very at odds with what the their leaders are doing. Um which is not treating the United States as a part-time European power, uh, which is showing a great deal of division on this issue and is, and is hedging their bets in various ways. So, so how do you explain the, the, the gulf between these results and what we observe the leaders doing? Well, I think the gulf might be closing a little bit. So I think over the last few weeks, you've seen more of a convergence of, of Europeans around a set of core principles and Europeans are being a bit less passive. They've spent the first few uh, weeks of the crisis, like uh, the proverbial uh, rabbit um, calling the headlines, 
And now what we're seeing is, is Europeans actually talking to the Russians a bit more, taking a bit more action, talking to each other and, and being a little bit more purposeful. But the, the thing which we haven't talked about yet is what people thought their own country should do. Maybe that kind of explains. Oh, okay. <laughs> Let's get into that then. I knew there would be a rub somewhere. So in Poland, for example, there is not a huge gap between the number of people who thought, think NATO should respond, the EU should respond in, in their own country. Though to, it is a, a decent gap. 80% think Europe should respond, 79% NATO, 63% of Poles think that they should respond. Yeah. The other extreme is Finland, where 20% of Finns think their own country should respond. Um, most of the member states are somewhere in the middle. Uh, Germany more towards the, the Finnish side, 37%. France, um, you know, I think it's 43%. Um, uh, Italy is very similar to France. Sweden um, is the same as France, Romania slightly less. So what you see is a sense that they should respond. But I, as I said before, I think they want to respond as part of a, an EU or NATO effort rather than all on their own. But is this a, I mean, I, I know it's probably beyond the numbers, but is this, are you interpreting this as that they want, that they want allies in their response? Or are you interpreting this as they want somebody else to deal with it for them? Yeah. Well, I think it's um, it probably covers a range of views, and I suspect you know both of those attitudes are compatible with our data. Um, I mean, the third thing which we kind of went into some detail on was like what sort of sacrifices people are willing to make, and maybe that would give us some clues yeah. to, to how willing people were to, to take on any of the burden themselves. Um, and there you have quite big differences between. Uh, between different countries. But, but maybe before we do that, what was just um, to finish that point, Germany and Finland were the only countries where uh, more, oh, and Italy, sorry, where more people thought that, that they shouldn't defend um, Ukraine than should defend. But it's quite closely balanced everywhere apart from Finland. Finland, 21% think they should uh, defend and 54% that you shouldn't. Whereas Germany, it's 37 that you should, 40 that you shouldn't. Um, Are you concluding from this that Finland has been Finlandized? It's you know it's a fair it's a fair conclusion I think because uh, one one of the other really striking things actually is how different Finland and NATO uh, and Sweden the two kind of non NATO members are. So Sweden in almost all the responses it behaves like a like, like a NATO country, to, but not just a NATO country a hawkish NATO country. It's like Poland, right? It's closer to Poland than, than even Romania is, interestingly, on, on most of these uh, figures. Whereas Finland is, is quite at the other extreme. It, it would be weird if Sweden was Finlandized. Well, not if you look at the, the debate, because in Sweden and Finland, they... Yeah, the debates look similar, yeah. I, I think they're, they're slightly different, but they're constantly comparing each other and, yeah. and sort of talking about... So the, the, the Finns have made, you know, a sort of declaration about how they can, how they should be allowed to join um, NATO, and the Swedes are arguing about whether they should or shouldn't. Um, but from your data, it appears that, that Sweden probably has the public consensus to join NATO, or at least has the policy to join NATO, and Finland does not. It has the policy, but not the public consensus. We asked people whether they were happy or or, or whether they regretted um, not being in NATO in both of those two countries, and. It's definitely true that uh, that there were more Swedes who regretted not being in, in NATO than Finns, but they're still far from being a majority. 
Um, so I think both of them are sort of um, not that unhappy about. I mean, they they are divided societies when it comes to NATO membership. But but Sweden is behaving in a, in a kind of fundamentally different way. The other interesting thing before we kind of move on to the sacrifices is just some of the divisions within countries are, are, are surprising and interesting. So Germany, for example, as I said, thirty seven percent think that Germany should defend. Ukraine, 40% think that it shouldn't. So it looks like a majority of people, well, a plurality of people don't want to defend it. But when you look at the party breakdowns, they're quite surprising. So the, the stereotype is that you have all these sort of pacifists in the Green Party and the SPD who are holding Germany back and making it really weak in its response. But actually, those parties are, are more hawkish um, than the centre-right parties. Um, so... 55% of Greens uh, supporters want uh, Germany to respond and uh, a small um, plurality of, of SPD, I think 44% as opposed to 40% of SPD supporters want uh, Germany to, to respond. Whereas the CDU is, is almost uh, exactly divided between the, two, um, uh, between the two camps, between the sort of uh, pacifists and the hawks. So, um, Mark, I think maybe we should move on to this question of the sacrifices. I guess um, I still remain uh, suspicious that Europeans are this hawkish because they think that Americans will solve this problem for them. Is that am I wrong about that? Uh, well, it's definitely true that not all Europeans are willing to bear any burden and pay any price in order to defend Ukraine. But I would say that it's maybe a bit more balanced than I thought it was going into it. Uh, we did a kind of interesting um, set of questions where we asked people what kind of price they were willing to pay, economic downturn, higher energy prices, refugees from Ukraine, cyber attacks, the threat of military invasion. And we asked for every country um, that it was uh definitely worth the risk of, of, of responding uh, in the event of a Russian equation, invasion, even if these things happened. Probably worth the risk. Probably not worth the risk. Definitely not worth the risk. And um, we sort of did a heat map where we looked at whether uh, there was a sort of positive balance in favour of action or against action. Yeah, it's hard to do justice to a heat map on a podcast, but give it a try. It is true, but what you can see is that um, in Poland, on every single dimension, all risks are worth taking. Uh, majority, uh, uh, there are more people who want to take the risk, don't want to take the risks in Poland, and in Sweden, and in Romania. Um, at the other extreme was France, where none of the risks <laughs> uh, are worth taking. So you have minus 10 on the economic downturn in France, Minus 10 on higher energy prices, minus 9 on, on the threat of refugees, minus 10 on cyber attacks, minus uh, uh, 18 on, on the threat of military action. Um, so here is where we see this east-west divide. It's, it's not about hawkishness overall. It's about the sacrifices that they're willing to bear. I think that's true. I mean, it's not quite an east-west divide. And, and it's also a bit surprising because... If you read the media, you, you know, you'd have thought that maybe the the country least willing to make sacrifices would be Italy because, you know, Putin even did this call with Italian business leaders. Italy uh, often has a pro-Russian strand in its public debates and, and various parties 
in Italy have, have regularly called for sanctions to be listed, lifted. But actually, in Italy, people were surprisingly willing to make some, you know, to, to, so you have uh, more people who are willing to sacrifice themselves and get have higher energy prices or take refugees than the opposite. Um, and when it comes to cyber attacks and the economic downturn, it's almost exactly evenly balanced. It's only minus two on the economic downturn, minus one on cyber attacks. The only area where Italians are really scared of, of, of the risk is the threat of being invaded by Italy, uh, sorry, invaded by Russia. But that is presumably like a, a, a minor threat, given the other countries that would have to be invaded before um, before the Russians. Yeah, they would have ample warning at least. <laughs> um, so that I think that was quite surprising, and even Germany actually was quite um, uh, you know evenly split. So. On higher energy prices, it was it was exactly even. On cyber attacks, it was exactly even. On uh, the threat of, of refugees, people were actually more willing to take the risk than not take the risk. So uh, it, I think it was a more sort of um, balanced picture than you'd have expected. France was the only country where significantly more people didn't want to, to take action than take action across all those different dimensions. So... Um I know it's a little bit beyond the scope of your paper, but I'm just wondering, given that these results are, I think, a little bit surprising in terms of the sort of overall hawkishness and even willingness to bear sacrifices of the European public. That's not something that you see very often reflected in the public debate or even, I would argue, in the sort of policymaking circles. I think very often when you talk to policymakers about different options vis-a-vis Russia, They say, well, we're good to do that, but we just don't have the public consensus for that. And you hear that particularly in Germany, uh, but in a lot of different countries, a lot of different countries. So do you think that this opens up um, uh, new possibilities for European policies? Is this a tool that European leaders can use for their Russia policy? I'm not sure if it's a tool, but I think it shows that if European leaders want to extract themselves from the learned helplessness which has characterized their response to the crisis in the first few weeks um you know i don't think they have to be terrified of public opinion um what our poll shows is people are sitting up and paying attention we ask people how closely they're following the crisis and we gave them a a kind of range of options from 10 where they're basically glued to to their Twitter feeds and watching 24-hour cable TV and yeah. doing nothing else. Um, what are you, an 11? <laughs> um, or, or zero, um, where they're like not watching it or listening to it at all. Um, and actually, yeah, the um, European public are much closer to our side of the equation. I mean, they're, you know, a majority of them are at least over seven, I think. It's quite fascinating. I'm, I was very surprised by, um, yeah, by that. Clearly, we have a market, market opportunity <laughs> here, too. More people will read our papers. Um, so people are kind of sitting up, paying attention, and they want a response. And they're really scared of war, and they see it as a problem for themselves. They're worried about the effects on their everyday lives. So I think that that would seem to indicate that they don't just want their leaders to sit on their hands and do nothing about it. Um, I mean, you can see from the heat map that, you know, don't necessarily want to make enormous sacrifices. Their favorite sanctions can be ones that hurt the Russians, but don't hurt us. But that's, that's, uh, that's fair enough. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that there is scope 
And what's really interesting, talking to, I've met quite a few European leaders over the last couple of weeks, and um, they're saying that actually, if you look at discussions in the European Council, the European level, that there also does seem to be a slow convergence of the position, the official positions of different countries, where, you know, a few months ago, if you talked about this situation, there's very low levels of trust between um, the countries that thought of themselves as principled, who was willing to stick up for the, the, the kind of principles of European order enshrined in the Paris Charter, in the Helsinki Final Act, in other documents, and um, countries that were keen to, to negotiate a new framework for European security. Um, and that, that uh, difference seems to be sort of narrowing countries in in the central in, in central and eastern europe and um uh, uh and in nordic um member states seem to be you know quite happy that um uh even if they don't love all of the different aspects of french diplomacy what emmanuel macron or others are doing that they are sticking to the to, to the kind of norms um which europeans have agreed and uh talking about Ukrainian sovereignty and um, the five principles of, uh, or the, the um, what is it? The five principles. The uh, sorry, can you uh, clean this up when you're editing it? What's that document called about the five? I'm know, not sure what you're EU talking about. The mince. About the mince. Five, no, no. There's an EU thing about five principles on Russia. Oh yeah, Actually, I don't know what it's called though. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's forget about the five principles. <laughs> but um, so even. Um, a lot of Nor- a lot of Eastern Europeans and people in Nordic countries um, are heartened to see that even if they don't love French diplomacy, that President Macron is uh, standing up for Ukrainian sovereignty and repeating um, his commitment to to the basic principles around European order. And they also see um, Olaf Scholz reluctantly saying all options are on the table when it comes to to sanctions. And on the other side. Um, uh, sorry, and, and even President Orban, this is one minister confided to me recently, even President Orban's behaving relatively well by his own standards when he goes to Moscow. Um, so I think that they're relatively kind of um, uh, surprised at how much Europeans are stand, standing together from, on the pro-engagement side. And on the other side, um, they are not, um, you know, uh, immediately panicking that that um, that there are attempts being made by the White House, by President Macron, to engage um, with Russian security concerns and even to talk about these security concerns as legitimate, even though um, many people understand that, that the main reasons that the European security order is breaking now is because of, of Russian choices and actions over the last period of time. So that could mean that that. Not just at a level of public opinion, but at a level of governments who could see more of a consensus emerging, which might mean that Europeans actually start using some of the possible leverage that they have over the US, over Russia and over Ukraine to, to push forward uh, a resolution which is less awful than the threat of total war or a kind of Yalta II settlement that's, that's arranged over the heads of Europeans and Ukrainians. Well, that's a relatively cheery conclusion, especially relative to what we usually uh, talk about. I guess 
it sort of verifies the age-old truism that nothing brings Europe together like Russian aggression. Um, I think uh, that's, uh, I think we've, uh, I'm sorry. Um, we just have one thing left to do on this podcast, and this is our bookshelf section. Uh, so uh, what's on your bookshelf, Mark? And of course, um, I'd recommend that everyone actually read your uh, your policy brief, the policy brief that you wrote with Ivan, which is on the ecfr.eu website and is called The Crisis of European Security, What Europeans Think About the War in Ukraine. So when you're on the website, you should check out some of the other things that people have been writing about the, the Ukraine crisis. Um, it's a great piece by Jeremy about why Europeans are not um, at the table and how um, much of a, of a shock to European credibility um, we've seen as a result of the crisis. So what's that called, Jeremy? Uh, what is that called? I can't even remember the name of my own pieces. Uh, it's called Why Why Europeans Have No Say in the Ukraine Crisis. Okay, so I very much recommend that. And if you find all of that too depressing, um, I uh, can recommend uh, a series which I've come to rather lately, um, uh, but which has got nothing to do with Ukraine, um, Pure Escapism, called After Life by Ricky Gervais, which is rather a touching series about um uh existential angst well about bereavement um which is something which i've been uh living through for the last few months um and it's it's quite a charming and um and kind of heartwarming uh three series that i binged on um when i was coming back from uh my own uh pan-european uh diplomatic action on on the ukrainian uh crisis um, so uh, I recommend that on Netflix. After uh, that's great. I, I actually saw that series too. It is really, uh, I think, a very special program because it's uh, it manages to be at this what in the way that Ricky only Ricky Gervais can do be both incredibly touching and incredibly funny. Yeah, uh, I'm a little bit embarrassed in terms of my bookshelf selection because I was on this podcast a few weeks ago and I'm still reading the same book. Uh, which is Neil Stevenson's Termination Shock, <laughs> which is troubling to me. But uh, I would point out that the book is 800 pages long and I'm almost done with it. And now that I'm, you know, uh, 700 pages in, I'm still recommending it to our podcast listeners. It's a really intriguing book about the political effects of geoengineering in, the, in a sort of near future scenario. Great. Well, we'll have to get you back on the podcast quite soon when you've read your last two pages. Yeah, please check with me first uh, before you do that. Um, Okay, we will put a link to all the publications that we just mentioned, including Termination Shock again, on our website at ecfr.eu. And if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please let do let other people know by writing about it on your social media page or on ours. But above all, Uh, please give us a good rating. Five stars is recommended, but not mandatory on whichever platform you use to download this podcast. But for now, um, from Ivan Krastev in Abstentia, Mark Leonard and myself, Jeremy Shapiro, it's goodbye. The researcher of this podcast is Lucy Hapenthal and our editor is Marlena Riedel.